this morning, yeah, that'd be ideal for the microphone to be by my mouth, right? This morning we'll be in Acts again, Acts chapter 26, and we'll hopefully get through the whole chapter uh, and hopefully do it in a reasonable amount of time uh, because the title of today's message is The Words of Truth and Reason. The Words of Truth and Reason. I think that's such a wonderful statement for the day and age we live in to know that there are words that are truth and are reasonable and make sense. And Paul's going to share some of that with us this morning. But just to refresh on Acts, that we're looking at the church on earth. That the whole study through Acts this time has been about the church itself on earth. That the church isn't a building, it's people. That we ourselves, even though we're not incorporated here, we're just friends getting together to hear God's word and worship together, that we are a part of the church. That you and I as believers are blocks in that building of God, so to speak, not made with human hands, but made with God's hands. That is people. It's people. A lot of people, you know, and I know that in our day and age that we just say church, right? And we mean a building, the church down the road, right? But it's really truly meant to be the people are the church. That the people are really more than just a club, but that it's really the body of Jesus. That collectively, some are the feet, as Paul said, some are the hair, some are the eyes, some are the hands. Some are the, the more honorable parts and some are the less honorable parts. But that body is full of God's spirit. And if we're full of God's spirit, we're going to live out a life individually and collectively. That's the life of Jesus. Doing the things that he did and does. We're not just meant to look like Jesus and have a bumper sticker on our car. We're meant to be Jesus on earth collectively. That... um. In fact, the name Christian, right? They originally called themselves members of the way that Christians was, I think I said it last time, uh, a pejorative. It was making fun of them. Oh, look at the little Jesuses running around doing the things that Jesus did. Look at a Christian. And eventually it stuck. It was something that was meant to make fun of us. But that we're really supposed to do it by the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, I can't stand up and, and share this with you without God's power. And you might go, I don't really see much of that going on in your life. But I tell you that the only reason I'm here is because of his power. Even spending time with the Lord in worship for him, I'm like, Lord, like, I can't do this unless you do it. I can't muster this up. I can't force this to happen. I want you to be here, God. I want to be the, the talking to you and preaching through you to anyone else. And if they hear anything, I want them to hear what you would say, God. And then truly, all those movies and folklore about being possessed right, by an evil spirit, God wants us to be possessed by him. And we're not going to convulse and writhe on the floor or crawl up to the top of the ceiling. You know, if there's a church that does that, I don't know that they're possessed by the Holy Spirit at that point. But God wants us to be possessed by him, to go out and do our jobs, to be the moms, to be the dads, to be the children, not only of our parents, but of him. That when we go out in the world, our lives would be different, not because we choose to be different in a sense, like we just want to be weird, but because we are different. By his spirit. We don't like the things that the world likes. We don't want to get involved with the things that the world does because we have God's spirit in us, right? That I was thinking about yesterday, thinking about just, you know, uh, the way our lives are and the things my kids will encounter as they grow up. And, you know, someone might say that we're weird to them one day. And I'm like, well, yes, we are weird. We are not of this earth. We are like those aliens who come down and take on human form and live a life on earth, but we're really not there. You remember uh, Coneheads or what was that show, Third Rock from the Sun, right? That we are not of this world, that we as believers have been changed and transformed and renewed into the likeness of Jesus. 
So we shouldn't look like the world, right? And it's okay if we all dress and have the clothes on we have on that look like someone down the road or the same people at Murdoch's might look exactly like us. But we're different. And our lives are different. And again, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. The church is not perfect. Read through the scriptures. Read through what Jesus says in Revelation like we saw. Church is far from perfect. But it is called to be holy. Like that song that we sang that, you know, is desired that we choose to be holy, right? That God is holy, and so he commands us to be holy. That doesn't mean we get this wrong idea of holy as we walk around with our nose up in the air and we don't talk to people or we're rude or self-righteous. But holy means separate. And really means separated unto God. That we've said our lives, God, are not for us, not for the people around us, but they're for you. And so if you call me individually not to do something that even another believer doesn't have a problem doing, I'm not going to do it because you've called me to be separate. You've called me to be over here, to be for you and separated unto you, God. And I think monks kind of get it wrong where they go and live off in the mountain in the monastery and they want to be holy and separate. They've separated themselves from the world in a sense, and I get that. But God wants us to be in the world, but not of it, and separate to himself. That we would be to him, that our hearts, our minds, our souls would be for him and him alone. And through that, that we would live earnestly for Jesus. And we see that in the, in the early church. We don't see them messing around. We see them seriously living for God and being different for him in a world that was very much not about Jesus and very much not about one God. It was a, an, an evil and wicked world in their day as well. But last time and previously in Acts, we've seen Saul as a Pharisee, that he even violently persecuted the church, uh, that Jesus knocked him off his high horse, so to speak, as you see the kids coloring over there, that God calls him. And truly, if we remember in the beginning of Acts, before Pentecost, uh, Judas, remember Judas had killed himself, uh, and so the disciples were all like, well, I guess we kind of need a 12th still, so let's draw straws, and they picked Matthias and this other guy, which I'm sure God used, and I'm sure they love God, but he wasn't the replacement apostle. Paul was the guy who, in a sense, filled Judas's role, um, you know, a seat at the 12 table, so to speak, uh, that their flesh could not call this person, that they chose these men by straws. They might have even had a council to pick the most righteous man in their eyes to do the job. But God picked someone that they never would have even imagined, one that was out killing them, one that was out arresting them, one that was out destroying the church is the one that God called to write most of the New Testament. That's pretty telling that the things that God sees in us, the, the, the things that God wants to do in us, no one else would guess. No one else would even think about. But that Paul, despite him being such a Jew of Jews, was called to preach to the Gentiles. And when we saw that he turned immediately to the Jews, I'm sorry, he turned to the Jews, immediately they rejected him. They started a riot and the cops got called and Paul got arrested when he did, had done nothing wrong, as we've seen. And we've seen him before trial for stirring up the people, they say even though he committed no crime. We saw several uh, leaders and, and rulers of the area already struggling to put a charge on him, but they know that they can't just release him because of the mob. Um, and so Paul appeals to Caesar as his Roman citizenship uh, gave him the right to. And so Festus, before sending him to Caesar without a charge, calls in the Jewish king Agrippa to help figure out what to do. He's like, I can't send him to Caesar. I can't send him with no charges. Help me figure something out here. But as we get back to Paul's trial, which... Uh, is interesting in its own right. There's a few questions I have for us this morning. And they are, do you and I know what to do in life? What do we do in life? And as we do it, and as we consider whether we know what to do or not, you know, 
getting ready to go to college or that age, right? You're always thinking about what am I going to do with my life? And then, you know, you go to college and then you change your major or you drop out or you change your major again. And then you go to get another degree, another degree, because you still don't know what to do with your life, right? What do we do with it? Even in our careers, we talk about focusing on the things that we're good at, but do we really know what we do? Talk about the kids growing up and can't wait to grow up. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm even grown up yet. There's people my age who are more grown up than me. People my age are less grown up than me in my estimation. But do we ever stop and consider that direction that we're headed in? Even if it's a good and everything is going fine. I think a lot of times we wait until something bad happens to consider that we've gone the wrong way. We wait till our car is stuck in the muddy road. We watch this channel, Matt's Off-Road Recovery on YouTube. And there are all these people, usually out-of-state plates. Uh, they're in Utah. Uh, usually it's like a rental car. It's two-wheel drive. They've got street tires on it. And they're out miles in the wilderness on this muddy, snowy trail, stuck. And he's got to come out there in his giant lifted vehicle with huge tires to pull him out. I'm like, did you not stop to consider that the vehicle you're in was nowhere near capable of going off-road and you just decided to head down this path? And people wait and someone's going to rescue them. And I think that's us in life. We wait until we get so far down the wrong path that we wait to get rescued. Or we get so far down the wrong path, we're like, I've gone down this wrong path so long, I can't stop now. Might as well keep going. But do we ever do that when things are good? No. That, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that when things are going good, that perhaps we should stop and wonder what we're doing. And more than that, why do we believe what we believe? Each of us believes something here today. And I think a lot of it's very similar in a lot of ways. And not that it all has to be exactly the same. We don't have to agree on everything. But do we believe it because we believe it? Do we believe it because we've seen it? Do we believe it because we've been told it? Do we believe it because we've experienced it or tried it for ourselves? Has it proven to be true in our lives or not? Um, you're watching the show. <laughs> the husband, the wife's dying of cancer and the husband wants to take her to like a faith healer. She's like, what did you bring me here for? I'm like, these people believe these crazy things just to, to get saved. They pay so many money and somehow this guy's going to fix them, right? And with that, what do we want most out of our life? If we begin to question these things, are we getting what we want out of life? Are we where we want to be? Do we have a longer plan? And if we're honest, I'd say that maybe we aren't getting the most out of life that we want, right? We just got new furniture the other day, and I'm like, I want to go back there and see what else. I don't know that I need anything else. Maybe a chair for the guest room. I haven't got everything I wanted. There's a deal to be had, right? And it's bothering me. I mean, I've got other things to buy that I probably shouldn't buy anything else. But I don't know if I said it last time, but Ray Comfort, uh, an evangelist, says, the Christian believes the Bible because he has met its author. And I believe that to be true in my life because I don't believe the Bible just because I grew up around it. I walked away from it. I don't believe the Bible just because it has facts in it that archaeological and that it makes sense. I believe it does make sense. Yeah, those are good reasons, but I believe it because I met Jesus. Because Jesus showed up in my life and forgave me and changed me and showed me that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that the way I was going, I didn't have to be on anymore. I could go his way. And the rest of it, I go, okay, well, if that's the person who loves me, that's the person who this book speaks about, then of course I'm going to believe it. But even from there, the, the more I've, I've read it and, and gotten into it and allowed it in my life, the more it just makes sense, the more it's just reasonable. And even the things that don't make sense, as we'll see, make sense. 
But Lord, we pray that uh, as we get through this message that, God, something would make sense, that you would speak through your word to us and that we would hear it and know it and trust you, God, even when our life doesn't make sense or even when we think we got it all figured out, God, would you upend it and get us on an even better path with you and for you, that when uh, our days come to an end, God, you say uh, we should teach us to number our days that we could gain a heart of wisdom, that, God, you'd make us wise and know, uh, know that we know, most of all, not even just wise things, but we would know you and know you better through it and uh, through all our days and that others would come to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this chapter today, uh, you know, I, I've read it and I'm looking through it and I go, this has got to be in here for a reason. We've got two or three chapters here of Paul in court. You know, how much fun is that, right? I know my wife I've used to watch those crime shows. Uh, your mom's been binging Judge Judy and stuff, you know, that she's been home uh, from the hospital, right? The people love these court shows, and they're kind of fun, but I just, I wonder why the Bible would devote so much time to Paul in court, right? Like, is there, you know, if you're going to have these three pages, this is all you can have, is this what's going to write? But for some reason, it's there, and it's a very detailed look at Paul's situation in life. And I think in some way, it uh, exposes some of the ineptitude of man's government, right? As I work around Fortune 500 companies and other things, I see, well, they really don't have it together as much as we would think they would, right? Sometimes the mom and pop has a better focus on what they need to do. Uh, but I get it. There's complexities in business. Uh, but that a big part of this is part of God's call on Paul's life, that this allows Paul to go to Rome and eventually lose his life for the gospel. And that, and that really, I think, to highlight here is that the call of God really is specific on each of our lives. It's a call to generally to all of us, um, but that it's also specific for each of us, that the call of God will look generally the same on all of us, but that specifically on each of us, it is going to be very pointed to our own lives and be different and play out differently in each of our lives, right? And that every matter of our life, whether it's three chapters in, in court uh, it's important to God and that it's planned for his purpose, that this wasn't an accident that Paul was uh, in court for this reason. And just a reminder of these couple verses in Matthew 10, 19 and 20, Jesus says, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about what, uh, about how or what you should speak for it will be given to you in that hour, what you should speak for. It is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you that to Paul here and to us, even if we go to court for our faith one day, we don't need to come up with some elaborate plan on what to share to get ourselves out. We just share the truth. We just allow God to speak for us and through us. And he'll give us the words. And Isaiah 18, 118 says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That God, through all this, does not want to be unreasonable. He wants to get to the truth in each of our lives. And really show us that there's a better way that, you know, hey, why would you not want your sins forgiven? Why would you not want a better path for your life than what's in front of you already? Even if you already are the rich young ruler, uh, so to speak. So let's go on and read uh, chapter 26. And we'll take it in a couple of chunks here. The first one being verses 1 through 3. It says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. That's a good deal. You know. So Paul stretched out his hand, and he made his defense. King Agrippa, 
I consider myself fortunate that today I shall make my defense before you against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to patiently listen to me. And again, this is Paul. This is 2,000 years ago in Rome. It might be a little foreign to us. He's talking to a fellow Jew. I don't know that any of us are really Jews in this room here. But he's talking to King Agrippa. And uh, one commentary of David Guzik reminds us that King Agrippa, uh, his man was great-grandfather, was the one who had tried to kill Jesus as a baby. The one who set out the command to kill all the toddlers, right, two and under, that the wise men had been very wise to not tell them exactly where they were going, what they were doing. Uh, and his grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded. So, so far, this guy's family line is 0-2. They've wanted to kill Jesus. They've murdered thousands of babies. And they cut off the prophet, one of the greatest prophets, John the Baptist. Um, and he also mur martyred the first, his father, then his father, so his great-grandfather killed the babies. Grandfather, he killed John the Baptist. His dad killed James. And now Agrippa's family history, he says, made him unlikely to receive Paul warmly. That this guy was a Jew, he was a king, but he was really against, uh, his family line was against Christianity. Uh, and that really sets up, I think, King Agrippa for a big failure today, uh, uh, despite what he sees. And so Paul wasn't buttering up, him up, I believe. He was trying to find that avenue of connection. Uh, when he says that you're an expert in these things, you understand the gospel's been shared with your family, the scriptures you're familiar with, you understand the prophets and the law of Moses. Uh, and I think that this is a good lesson for us because it's so easy to, to focus on the differences between us and those around us. I think sometimes, rightfully so, it's good to have that distinction that certain people do this and we don't do that, right? Uh, but not to always just be a religion of no's or uh, a faith of we don't do that. But really, that we would find some common ground with people that we're trying to minister to. Not that we would compromise, but I find a lot of times, like, I, I don't drink, right? I haven't had alcohol, thankfully, since I got saved. So something that God has taken away from me, something that I've come to the scriptures and seen, it doesn't look like it's for believers, and it's certainly not for pastors or people in leadership. Uh, you can have your opinion on that, and I'm not here to ju judge you on that. But I bring the point up that when I hang out with people from work or people who aren't saved, or you know, there's like a work party or something, and they're ordering drinks, and the waiter comes around and says, what would you like? I, I don't say, I don't drink. I'm not going to have alcohol. I say, I'll have a Diet Coke and lemon, right? You know, they, people can ask me. and say, oh, yeah, I don't drink, right? But I'm not trying to like push it in their face and cause a division between us. Now there comes a point in time when I'm at those work parties, uh, when the alcohol begins to have its effect on the mass and there's no level of reason anymore. And it's time for me to step away, right? I'm not gonna stay there and be part of a raucous party or anything, but if we're out having dinner or uh, a meal or just hanging out and they wanna have a beer or two, that, it doesn't bother me, right? You know, I feel for them like, I'm sorry, you gotta, spend $8 on a beer when you go to a hockey game or whatever it is now. But on the flip side, like I'm not going to try and bring up that separation there. I think a lot of times we'll do that and immediately it just puts, oh, this person's not a drinker, right? Like, and they, you know, it just, it's fine to tell them, but to purposely make it as like some stand you're standing on, I think that there's a problem there. And so Paul doesn't do that. Paul tries to reach out and say, hey, look, like, you know the things of the Jews. You're a Jew. I'm a Jew. Let's find some common ground so that we can, we can begin to reason together on this. And that's my point there, is that the point of that is not to close an open door for conversation with someone. But Paul recognizes who he's speaking to. He preaches 
but he speaks to the people in front of him. And he never just gives this like canned response of, uh, well, the Bible says, you know, he begins to reach to them uh, and talk to them. You know, there's a lot of things that we have, you know, you can watch political things online and you just, you hear the, the soundbite and you repeat the soundbite, but you haven't quite digested it. You know, well, that's, that's a good start, but let's have a conversation. Let's meet them where they're at and share with, know it so well that we can share it with whoever we're sharing with in a personal way. Because God's personal. God doesn't just, I mean, he'll quote the scripture to us, right? But it's personal to you and I. He tries to meet us where we're at with it. He doesn't just try and like give us like, you know, you call, ever call a helpline and you get Bob, but you know his real name's not Bob because, you know, with that kind of accident, no one's named Bob in that country. And you can hear them like flipping through the pages for the right answer to give you to your problem. They don't really understand the problem, but they're like, oh, uh, have you tried turning off and on again? I'm like, no, that's obviously not the answer, right? We don't want to be like that when it comes to sharing our faith, when it comes to just being friends with people who aren't Christian. We want to be able to say, oh no, well this is, you know, lead them in a more natural way. And I think Paul's trying to do that here. And he says, I beg you to patiently listen to me. And I should probably start out every message with, I beg you to patiently listen to me. Because I talk a lot. But sometimes it does take a little while to explain a situation fully, especially an important matter. And in our day and age, I think that's hard for us to grasp. Uh, I was giving a presentation to a client the other day and just giving off some metrics about what we did a, uh, an audit of their web properties and we're going to redesign and everything. But I was trying to drive home the fact that we need to organize it better than the way you've got it organized because if someone comes to a page, if they don't see what they're looking for in three seconds or begin to see it, they're going to bounce and go somewhere else. Uh, and so just the importance of where you lay things out, how you lay things out, the way they look, right? You've got three seconds. That's not a lot of time. Um, you know, beyond that, people don't read, so we have to make it very simple. You know, when you go to a web page, you just scroll, you just look, you're not reading the fine print. Um, they don't listen. They don't pay attention. If you have kids, you know what that's like. You don't pay attention. If you have a husband, you know what it's like. He doesn't pay attention, right? Uh, if you watch TV or remember... If you're as old as me, remember music videos, right? How fast the cuts were. And there's a science there that if it was longer than 10 seconds, people would zone out. And that time window has gotten shorter and shorter to where they have to cut and keep the screen changing and flashing to keep your attention. YouTube, trying to compete with TikTok, has shorts now. And they're trying to push all their advertising money to shorts that people just watch less than a minute, less than a minute, less than a minute. And it's, before you know it, it's like three hours later. And you're like, what did I even watch? So don't watch it. Or headlines, you know, you just get the soundbite of a headline, and it's not even nearly accurate. A lot of times it's clickbait. But people don't take the time, and this is my point, to fully consider the story, to fully consider the facts, to fully consider the reasons, to fully consider the big picture. Take this spy balloon that went over the other day. Why are they telling you, why are they letting us know about this one, but they didn't let us know about the other ones? Is there a reason why they're letting us, you know, like, why do they not shoot, you know, all these other things that you wouldn't think about. If you think about it for a minute, you realize there's way more to the story than just what they're telling you. But for the gospel, it's simple. The message is simple. But we have to walk through it sometimes. And I think most people reject it when they reject the gospel, when they choose, because they haven't fully thought it through. What does it really mean? What is it actually saying? What is the actual end of my life? No, I don't want to think about that right now. I'll put it off to when I'm old. But if you just spend three minutes thinking about it, you go, this is pretty reasonable. This is pretty logical. Why would I ever want to go to hell and have a life that's destroyed 
by sin because it's fun. They're too busy, too distracted. Maybe their next pleasure, their next sin, the next desire, like trying to teach kids, right? There's always some distraction. You can't bring the, the toy to the table because they get distracted by it. Let's go on and read next, the next uh, section. Uh, verse 4 through 11 says, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, uh, spent from the beginning in my own nation and at Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They knew me from the beginning, and they could testify if they wished how according to the strictest sect of our religion I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand on trial for hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God day and night. Concerning this hope, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why is it judged incredible by you that, that God raises the dead? I too thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which indeed I did in Jerusalem and locked up many of the saints in prison by authority from the chief priests. By when they were killed, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being extremely enraged against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. So Paul, again, he explains to Agrippa and everybody else, like, look, like I was... And in some ways still am the same as these people. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he's saying, about as perfect a life in Judaism as possible. That there's a difference between Pharisees and Sadducees, which we don't need to get into today. Uh, But that they were very much about the law and very much about tradition, very much about their own self-righteousness and about... Moses and the commandments, right? And so he was very passionate about these things. He was very well educated uh, up to one of the highest universities, basically, under one of the highest teachers of their day. He's saying, look, like I was like one of them. I know everything that they're talking about inside and out. I lived it. I breathed it. And he's saying the only reason why I'm here, the only reason why I'm in court is because I have hope in the promise that they're missing out on. That the promise made by God to our fathers of the Messiah is the thing that I have hope in. And they don't have that hope. And basically they hate me for it. And they hate the message of it. And so Paul immediately ties it back to what that belief in Jesus is. Believing that this promise that God had made all along had actually come true. That the things that they were looking at day in, day out, believing in, trying to obey, they had missed the very point in it. And so he highlights the fact that this hope has put him on trial. He doesn't highlight their difference. He takes what they have in common and says, look, let's go a step deeper than that. Let's get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the hope, the hope that's there. That these Jews and even he himself before Jesus have been trusting in what he had done to make him righteous. He had been trusting in his own obedience of the law, his own obedience to the traditions. And they had hung on to that for a long time. They still do today. The fact that there's no temple, they've had to change and say, well, we can't have the sacrificial system, so your good works have to outweigh your bad works. And many Christians, I believe, whether they say so or not, I think adhere to the same thing today. That being good makes them right with God. That they've never missed a day of church. They've never not tithed less than 10%. They've... I don't know, never said a bad word, never had a drink. I never watched an R-rated movie. I don't know what, what the thing is. But they trust in these things, whether they say it or not. 
And so they miss out on the hope of God. They find themselves in a rigid religion that controls, that weighs, that burdens, that keeps them separated in a, a self-righteous way from the world that needs them. Jesus said it's the sick that need a doctor, not the well, right? And that doesn't make them right with God. And so if they fail or if they see someone who fails, they point the finger in strict judgment and condemnation and damnation. Like I shared in a Proverbs message that there's two types of judgment, right? That there's the condemnation, but then there's also discernment. That our job is to discern between right and wrong, between good and evil and say, hey, the things you're doing are leading you to hell, but you don't have to go there. But people are caught up in religion and their own righteousness and thinking that they've got their own two legs to stand on, will say, you're going to hell and there's no hope for you. Well, there is a hope for all those people out there who hate God. There is a hope for the atheist at the university. There's a hope for the girl at Starbucks who's confused and thinks she's something else. That yes, this path they're on right now will take them to hell, but they don't have to go there. And so for us as believers, the separation between us and the world, large in part is our hope. That we've put our faith and trust in the hope of God through Jesus. That I'm not any better than anyone else. I'm probably far worse than everybody else. The fact that I know a lot of the scriptures and I still do the things that I do. I still say the things that I say. I've got a stricter judgment coming upon me for that. But that doesn't stop me from hoping in Jesus. That doesn't stop me from sharing the gospel because I know that, hey, even if I've got a stricter judgment, so be it. I know I'm going to heaven. And I want others to have that opportunity to go to heaven. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by the elders obtained a good testimony. The reason why Moses is in the Bible is because he had hope in God. The reason why Joshua and David and Samuel, they all hoped in God. They lived under the law, but they hoped in God through it that one day the Messiah would come to free them from sin and death. And that's the difference, is that faith isn't this leap of faith, as the world would call it. You don't know what's going on. No, you hope. You know what the scriptures say. You're looking forward to it. And so you carry on and continue in it. I hope to get a good deal at the, the furniture store. So that's why I took my lunch break early and we went down there, right? It was evidence of things not seen from a cheesy flyer that I thought was, are they, are they, are they really going out of business? You know how many times they have it going out of business or not? But God's not like that. When he sends you a flyer, it's the truth. So he says, why is, you thought, why is it thought incredible by you that God raises from the dead, Paul says. Like, if you believe that God made life, if you believe in creation, you believe in the flood, you believe in all the prophets and everything the Bible says up to this point, why would you believe it impossible that God could bring someone back from the dead? And I think we struggle with this too as believers. We struggle with miracles in Scripture. Uh, should I really pray to heal that person? Can God really heal them not that we need to go around claiming i'm never going to get the flu ever again you know this like false uh faith there but even with the plain truth of creation and all that why would it be impossible for god to raise someone from the dead why do we not believe these things that the bible says why do we put more faith to that face on cnn or fox news why do we put our faith into some old guy in a corduroy jacket at a university who hates God as opposed to the things that God does. If, if we believe that God made the world, why couldn't he do the rest of these things? And if we reason through the resurrection, I might even offer up to you that it's 
not as hard as making the world out of nothing. That bringing someone back to life from the dead for God is not a big deal. And I think even that's why God refers to it as sleep. Not that we have soul sleep, but every time he talks to us, he's like, oh, he's sleeping. Oh, she's sleeping. And they're like, dude, he's, he's dead. <laughs> but to God, he's like, just wake them up. Wake them up. That's not a big deal. Not to, not to belittle it, but it's not a big deal to God to bring someone back to life from the dead. He is the author of life. He can quickly bring someone back to life that was already living. And so Paul's initial reasoning in life, he says in verse 9, is that he had the strict belief in the law, but that he missed the point, and that he thought his service to God to fulfill this law and tradition was to kill all these believers. And like Jesus said in John 16, 2-3, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. And is that not our day and age that people are so caught up in their own self-righteousness, their own religion, that they'll kill you, they'll cancel you, they'll destroy your name just for disagreeing with them? That they believe so wholeheartedly in whatever it is that they believe in this day and age that they'll kill you for it. That their uh, doctrine of love is love <laughs> demands they hate you to the core and kill you if you don't agree with them. And says this one is kind of I've kind of missed this before going through Acts, but it says that Paul compelled them to blaspheme. That Paul, when he would drag these people out of the church, out of their houses, be beating them, have the sword, arrested, whatever he's threatening with, with, that some of them actually said, "Okay, I don't believe. Okay, you're right. I don't really believe in God." that they blaspheme God, the work of God in their lives. Now, do they repent after? It breaks my heart. I, I don't know that I, that I wouldn't relate if someone dragged me out of the house and was trying to kill my children or something, the things I might say and do even if they were wrong. So don't get me wrong in that, but at the same time, my heart breaks that. Paul, the things, Paul must feel the things that he did to these people. He's like, man, I can't believe I made them do the worst thing possible to say that they denied their, their Savior. And not that these people didn't go to heaven or anything, but just the awfulness that that would happen. And Paul persecuted these people, these same people. He says to foreign cities, I didn't just stick around town. I went as far as I could go. Get me a bus ticket across Europe. I'll go persecute Christians over there. There's not enough Christians here. I'm going to go somewhere else and persecute them there. He was a man on a mission. And a mission, he thought, from God. A mission, he thought, was righteous and true to kill people and hurt people and Rip apart families. And again, some people today will stop at nothing. And when you look closely, you realize that their motive is really just that they hate God. It's not that they love science so much. They just hate God and science or whatever they call it is their vehicle for it. So I think when evangelizing, sharing, I'm no expert evangelist, but I think it would serve us and them well to try and see that. To try and always get to the heart of matter when that person's talking to you at the gas station or at work or in your family over Turkey. You know, that the, the reason why they're so mad at Donald Trump or Joe Biden or whatever it is, that at the heart, there's something else going on. And we don't need to just argue doctrine. There's a place for that, for apologetics, and to say, hey, like, look, this is the truth, and here's some archaeological evidence, and no, this contradiction is not really what you think it is. Let's look at it in whole. But really to get to the heart of why they hate God. What happened to them that made them turn on God, that they blame God for? Were they hurt as a child? Did something happen to them? Did they not get something in life that they really wanted and they blame God for it? Like, why would God allow 
this in the world. Well, let me take you back to Genesis. God allowed it because we chose it, because he loves us, that we chose sin. And these things happen in the world because of sin. But guess what? God made a way out of all this, that God made a way and took all this sin on the cross, right? That I know it's easy to say that here, but I think you see where I'm getting that, that the heart of the matter is always to get them to hope in God. Verse 12 through 18 says, So I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw along the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me with those who journeyed with me. When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness both of what you have seen and what, you have, what I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is really laying it all out here. He's not hiding the fact that he had this vision of, more than that, he met Jesus in person. And then he was arm in arm with these people. He had their blessing. He had the, the warrant in his pocket to go arrest these Christians and uh, do more. But that he's really highlighting that, uh, the significance of his conversion. That he wasn't just a Jew and you know he heard some message on a Sunday and became a Christian. That it wasn't a small thing. And more than that, it wasn't an accident and it was not a doing of his own. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't seeking the truth. He was out trying to actively destroy the truth. And God showed up, smacked him off his horse and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like, you know the scriptures. Why are you doing this? And so this wasn't a simple change of opinion that his whole life was really upended by Jesus that day. That although he thought he could see, he was really blind. And God blinded him for a time that he might really... See, I know, I know. Paul clearly shows again that the, the resurrected the resurrected Jesus appeared to him in this glorious state, and that the resurrected Jesus knocked him off his horse. Again, he's showing that Jesus is alive, right? That the last chapter we saw that the, the Jews said that this man Jesus isn't alive. Paul says that he is alive, and Paul introduces Jesus to Agrippa the way that Paul was introduced to Jesus. He shared what happened. I think that's one of the most effective things we can do to other people whether they look at us like we're crazy and have two heads but share with them the moment that you came to faith in jesus what when was it that you met him when was it that he showed up in your life and said what are you doing you know or you forgive him whatever he said to you we don't need to come up with some doctrinal answer some five-point sermon share the things that we've seen and testify of as the disciples would say and that there was this personal call and personal relationship of Jesus and Paul that he shared with him. That he didn't know Jesus before that moment, but that moment he met Jesus, truly nothing was the same. And so Paul clearly and directly calls out, uh, knows his call from the Lord. Uh, that it's not some abstract here, but he knows what God has called him to do. And I wonder, do we know what God has called us to do? That is very specific. That number one, it's to come to faith in him. Right, John 3.16, that we would come to faith in Him and not face condemnation. But from there, our call in our lives is very specific. Right, 
disciples were called to leave their nets. Matthew was called to leave the tax collector booth. They were called to leave their jobs, their homes, their families. But yet when the demoniac got saved, and that guy who was on the other side, uh, uh, the uh, Gennesaret, I think it was, and he's living in the mountains, and he's living in the caves, and he's basically naked, and he's got chains, and no one goes over there because he's going to destroy them because he's got a legion of demons in him. God goes over there. <laughs> no one else would go. This guy gets saved. The demons are cast out, and he wants to follow Jesus. He says, Jesus, can I come with you? Please, let me come with you. You save me. And Jesus says, no. Go back to your town. That's kind of a bummer. Wouldn't it have been kind of cool to be like the 13th disciple? But you got to go back home to, to Bumpkinsville and tell them how you had all these demons and you wear clothes now. You know, like, but that was God's call on this man's life. That that call and that witness was greater than this man following them around. And that could be the same for you and I. That God wants us to stay in Bumpkinsville or go and follow him somewhere else. And that call, not one is better than the other, but is, is it what God has called you and I to do? And Paul to, was sent to the Gentiles, to kings in a way, that this Jew of Jew was not sent to the Jews. He was sent to the Gentiles. I think God lets him write Hebrews, in my opinion. If you look at Hebrews, even though there's an author, I think because Romans, Paul says basically, I'd rather go to hell and let all my countrymen come to faith. So I think God gives him a little pass. Says, okay, you can write Hebrews, but you can't put your name on it. You know, and I think that's, that's special there. But that God has an individual call for each of us. And that everything else in our lives need to be subject to that call. Not that we shouldn't have a job, but does our job allow us to pursue the call of God in our lives? Does it allow us just to go to church on Sundays or church on a Wednesday night? Whenever we have, you know, some people have to work on a Sunday. Well, okay, we'll just go on a Wednesday or something. But God's always faithful to get us back on track to that. That sometimes we think in life, it's too late, I've missed the call, I've messed up too long. No, God is always able to restore those years and get you back in the right direction. But I think many people don't follow that call, as we see in the scriptures, just because we're too busy. We want to get married. We want to bury the dead. We want to, I don't know what it is, if you look at the, all the, the feasts that were, people were invited to and they wouldn't show up, I think it's just we don't want to. The only thing that's hindering you and I from following Jesus is whether we want to or not. There's no reason why God wouldn't use you or I in amazing ways like he's used other believers. I think it just comes down to, eh, I'd rather watch the football game instead of spend time with the Lord. Eh, I'd rather sleep in today. Eh, you know, I'm talking about myself except for football. I'd probably be Formula One. But these are the things we say, right? We, we make these every little decisions and we decide not to leave our comfort zone. And Jesus says, uh, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. And don't let worry hold you back. Do I need to... Did I miss a note? Yep, 19 through 23. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared it first to those at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works proving their repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, I continue to this day, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ must suffer, that he would be the first who would rise from the dead and would announce light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Uh, that Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to this. As soon as I had this vision, I obeyed it right away. 
that Paul strove really his whole life to be obedient to the scriptures and tradition. And when God actually showed up and said, Paul, that's not the way to go. Paul immediately turned his obedience and his passion for doing the right thing and the things that God told him to do at the expense of everything else in his life. He says, I count it all garbage. You know, I got to go to the dump later. I don't, I'm bringing trash to the dump later. I'm not putting the TV in the trash, right? But Paul put everything in the trash. Paul took everything in the dump to be obedient to Jesus. Every status he had, apparently, potentially even his wife left him because of it. Because he had missed the point his whole life. In John 5, 39-40, Jesus says, and I'm quoting this for you, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That The whole point of everything Paul had been studying and learning and trying to obey was not self-righteousness, was not upholding a law or keeping a tradition. It was finding Jesus and putting our hope and trust in Jesus. That's the focus of the entire Bible. And Jesus showed up for Paul, and now Paul is showing up for Jesus, from Jesus, for Festus, for Agrippa, and for the rest of the court that day, that Jesus might be revealed to them through Paul as Jesus was revealed to Paul that day in Damascus. And so Paul lays out what he was that he was arrested because he was telling people to repent. Man, Peter gets all the success, right? The Holy Spirit comes, Peter just gets up, shares a message, <laughs> 2,000 people get saved, the church grows. Yay, Peter, yay, your success. Paul shares the gospel, he goes to jail. That's, I, know, I think I'd rather be Peter than Paul, right? And again, I think part of it is that Paul was telling them that you don't need this sacrificial system anymore. This power structure of the temple, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious, of the traditions, has no control over your life anymore. And I think some of these people in power realized that it was going to take their power away when they put their faith in Jesus, and they didn't want to relinquish their power to the religion of fishermen. I think that's much like the folks of in power these days. They don't want you to know the truth because like Jesus said, the truth will set you free and it takes the power out of them. When you're free, that means someone else got power. When you're not free, someone's got power over you. And I know we're uh, long in the tooth here, but we're going to get through it. And again, Paul says, I'm not teaching anything new. It's what's been right in front of us the whole time. This is stuff that Moses taught, the prophets taught. I'm not, I'm not coming to you with a new gospel. I'm just teaching you the fullness of the one that is already there. So verse 24, as he made his defense, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're mad. Much learning is turning you to madness. Paul said, I'm not mad. Most excellent Festus, I speak the words of truth and reason. The king before whom I also speak freely knows about these things, for I am persuaded that none of this is hidden from him. For this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I pray to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day and might, excuse me, this day might become not only almost, but thoroughly and altogether what I am, except for these chains. And when he had said this, the king rose as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they said to one, this man's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have gone free if he had not appealed to Caesar. As we close, we see that Festus interrupts there. He goes, Paul, you're nuts. You're crazy. You've, you're so smart. You've learned so much that it's thrown you off the deep end. 
And Paul says, no, 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 I'm not crazy. I'm the most sane I've ever been in my entire life, Festus. Don't you see that? Uh, and I think the problem is that people like to live in their little boxes. They like to be safe. They, like to, uh, they don't like that big world outside their own perception or what they thought of or considered before. Um, I think that happens when we try and share truth with people. They stick their heads out for a little bit. They get a glimpse on the periscope. And they go, oh, no, that's a scary thing out there to think that I'm not prepared for eternity. It's a scary thing to think out there that, oh, yeah, this country that I'm in is not the one I grew up in, right? Uh, things aren't as bad as what they say they are. But it gets them. And I think especially people in power, people with something to lose, so to speak, people who think they have science and truth and the world figured out, to them, the cross is the biggest offense because it upends everything that they've put their hope in. I can learn more things. I have hope in it, right? But Paul says again, I'm not crazy. I speak the words of truth and reason. And when we look at the Bible, I think we should see, if we're really coming to it, we'll see that it's truth and that it's reason. And it's reasonable. It's logical. It makes perfect sense. It's constantly verified like we talked about. There's things we could go all in there for another time. But most of all, that there's a God, that He made you. He loves you more than that. And he made life. And of course, if he made life, he has the power over death. He has the power to resurrect. And that's our hope, is in the resurrection. Is that we have hope because we know that death is not the end for us. I look at the Sadducees and they didn't believe in the afterlife. I'm like, what are you doing any of this for? Like, what's the point if there's no afterlife? Like, your life is going to be bad and you're just going to make it hard on yourself and be religious? Like, if there's no afterlife, do whatever you want. If the nihilists are right, go do what you want. Identifies whatever you want. Who cares? It's over. None of it's real. But the fact is that those things are, are not real. That there is an afterlife. And more than that, there is a God who we can know. And he made the afterlife. And we need to be resurrected for it. But he knows that Agrippa is understanding what he's saying. He's tracking with him. He knows that Agrippa knows the scriptures. And I think a lot of these people probably did. But they were maybe held back by the religious leaders at the time. Think about the age of the Catholic Church. And how people, you know, all the things that go on with that. Uh, Paul says to him, you know, these things weren't done in a corner. Christianity is not a secret. The church is in the community. The word's getting out. Jesus was right here. He ministered to your parents. And I think Agrippa was still under his family, wondering about his family line and not going against what his parents had taught him and done. And he says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. But the guy whose dad was a murderer, his grandfather was a murderer, great-grandfather was a murderer of prophets and children. I get it. It makes a lot of sense. And maybe if these people are around, I might, I, might not be, I might become a Christian if I wasn't king. And that's nothing sadder than someone knowing the truth, like the rich young ruler who, when told that not all of us have to give away our riches, but he had to give away his riches. And he went away sad, I said. So close. And the only thing holding you back is you don't want to let something go. There's nothing sadder than that. I can't imagine the people who stood before Billy Graham and didn't give their lives to the Lord and the things that they think about. Same thing with him here. And as Paul lays it all out, he uses his opportunity to share the gospel. At the very end, he brings up his chains. Um, you know, there's a whole lot to be said here. Was it a mistake? Was it not a mistake? Uh, but they say that uh, he's showing them really that the commentary says that he's, despite being in chains, he's more free than any of them. Despite being poor, he's more rich than any of these rulers here. Uh, and it's interesting, as they go away to their chamber, they say this man is doing nothing deserving of death or imprisonment, that he's done nothing wrong, but we're in effect, we've got our hands tied, and we can't free him, because he's appealed to Caesar, and we, we, 
has Caesar heard about it yet? No, they could have let him go. But they're like, no, we can't do anything about it. We've got to send him to Caesar. And so they do that. But despite all that, this was God's plan to send Paul to Caesar, to pay for Paul's trip to Rome with the government money, with the taxpayer money, to put him on that boat to go there. And Paul is able to share with them. And these people listened for a while, but then they had their fill. And I think we can do our best to reason with the world. We can do our best to reason with our family and friends. But at some point, they may reject it. They may not want to hear it anymore. I think we need to, to be able to read the room and know when, know when to quit, know when to be quiet, and know when to pray. And trust me, I know it's my time to quit here. But as we close, once you know and you reminded that God loves you, He's made a way for you, He has a plan for you, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you hope in the future. And that uh, Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That God has a plan and a purpose and a call for each of us. And as we find that, and part of the journey is just continually finding that, what do you have for me today, Lord? That that's where real life is. That even if you're in chains, even if you're stuck in school or stuck at a job or stuck in a loveless marriage, whatever it is, that you can be free as Paul was that day with the hope that we find in Jesus. And so God, I ask that you would bless this word. Let, it, uh, let us find our hope in you. Let those around us, let us share hope with them in this dark day that is so hopeless and helpless and um, caught up in so many wrong things. Let them find, uh, let us be a reason for them to turn to you and the change you've made in us. So God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you. Thank you for being patient and hearing me out. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until